African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. Thank you for joining us on our shortwave service on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And also you can join us on Channel 802, that is on DSTV. Well, today uh, the world will be marking the United Nations Day. Today we'll be looking at uh, the importance of uh, this international body. But before we get into that, let's get our news and Musa is standing by. In the headlines, Kenya yet to begin a formal process to quit the RCC. 83 Nigerian soldiers missing following an attack by Boko Haram and Somali pirates free 26 Asian sailors held captive for more than four years. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Kenya has yet to begin the formal process of leaving the International Criminal Court. Presidential spokesperson Manahu Isipisu says that while Kenya has passed two previous decisions to withdraw from the Hague-based court, a cabinet decision had not been reached. He was speaking days after South Africa and Burundi announced that they had began the formal process of withdrawing from the ICC. Meanwhile, South Africa's opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, is expected to file an urgent application for direct access to the constitutional court to challenge the constitutionality of a notice initiating South Africa's withdrawal from the ICC. The announcement to pull out of the Rome Statute was made by the Justice Minister Michael Masuta on Friday. The DA says the decision is at odds with the country's commitment to international justice and human rights. 83 Nigerian soldiers are missing after Boko Haram militants attacked a remote base in northeastern Nigeria. Officers say the soldiers were unable to fight back because they were poorly equipped. The army spokesperson last week said that some soldiers were missing and 13 wounded when the insurgents earlier this month attacked their base. South Africa's ruling ANC Youth League President Colin Mahine has joined the Deputy Defence Minister Kebi Mapatwe in calling on the party's chief whip Jackson Mtimbu to step down. Mtimbu early exposed tensions between factions in the ANC when he called on President Jacob Zuma and the ANC's National Executive Committee to resign over the Praveen Gordon and the party's weak showing in the August 3rd municipal election. Mayene says it's unfortunate that Mtimbu would choose to grandstand instead of following party processes. He himself was disciplined by the ANC recently after he called on MK military veterans to take up arms to defend the president. 
And finally, Somali pirates have freed 26 Asian sailors held captive for more than four years since their ship was hijacked in the Indian Ocean. The sailors from China, the Philippines, Cambodia, Indonesia, Vietnam and Taiwan were seized when the Omani flagged FV Naham 3 was hijacked close to the Seychelles in March 2012. Piracy off Somalia's coast has subsided in the past three years, mainly due to shipping firms hiring private security details and the presence of international warships. Recapping the top stories, Kenya has yet to begin a formal process to quit the ICC. 83 soldiers missing following an attack by Boko Haram at a remote base in northeastern Nigeria. And Somali pirates free 26 Asian sailors held captive for more than four years. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So, let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. South Africans are being called on to help Channel Africa help 32 children from Tumela Home for the Mentally and Physically Disabled Children in Ivory Park, east of Johannesburg. Make a difference by donating toys, non-perishable foods, disposable nappies and toiletries. Join Channel Africa on the 10th of November as we broadcast live from Tumelo House as we hand out the donations we received. Be with us as we make a difference. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin Mushatama, on our program today. I'm a bit fluey today. <laughs> Didn't have much of a great weekend, but I hope that I'm still audible for you, the listener. Thank you for joining us. Remember, we're having a conversation today looking at uh, the United Nations Day, which is being marked today. And on our social media, we're asking the question, why do you think Africa should be included on the UN Security Council's uh, permanent seats? Give us your thoughts. You remember, you can go to our Twitter handle at African Dialogue, at African Dialogue, or at Channel Africa One. It's the numeric one. So today, it's uh, it's kind of one of those days where we want to see what does this international body mean for the world? Is it effective enough? Should it reform in its kind of uh, very ancient kind of way of approaching also uh, the membership within uh, the United Nations? It seems problematic for African countries. There were, as we know, that uh, uh, none of the African 
African countries are actually included in the permanent members of the Security Council. And the world has shifted from the World War era when this uh, uh, United Nations body was established. So as I mentioned today, uh, marks the United Nations Day, which is an anniversary of the entry into force in 1945 of the UN Charter with the ratification of this founding document by the majority of its signatories, including the five permanent members of the Security Council, the United Nations officially came into being. This day has been celebrated as United Nations Day since 1948. In 1971, the United Nations General Assembly recommended that the day be observed by member states as a public holiday. That hasn't happened any time. So, hey, in South Africa, we already have enough holidays. But, hey, let's get our guests. Uh, we've got Sanushi Naidu on the line, who is a Senior Research Associate uh, for the Institute for Global Dialogue. And in our studio, we've got Kenneth Diole, who is uh, part of the youth program at the South African Institute for International Affairs. Before I come to Kenneth in our studios, let me start with you, Sanashu. The, the, the development of international law is one of the primary goals of the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations in its preamble sets the objective to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained. Uh, in, in terms of this duty of the United Nations, uh, do you think they've been doing a good job so far? Um, good, good morning, Benjamin, and to your guest. I think to a large extent the UN has tried. I mean, remember the UN has, was, was initiated and started in 1945, and it has evolved since then and gone through various um, kinds of, of, of redefining its role uh, based on different uh, historical issues uh, in terms of our, our evolving global uh, system. So in many ways, I think the UN has responded and tried to respond. And I think the one issue about the UN is that it's made up of member states. And member states are very much uh, you know, linked to their sovereignty. And to, to have a, a, a supranational or a, a, a governing body on a world scale to implement treaties and to actually carry out the mandate that you uh, just uh, echoed right now makes it a difficult job to do because it means that you're asking member states to do this in a way that they may feel that they don't want to give up their sovereignty on certain issues. Mm -hmm. And that has been the weakness around the UN. And in particular, I think, you know, looking at the Charter of the UN and looking at trying to uphold the the kinds of issues that the Charter mentions in terms of the kinds of, of things that we we want to see in terms of global global peace initiatives, issues that, that actually prevent uh, humanitarian crises, genocides, and so forth. What happens in the process is that there's a lot of uh, toing and froing by member states who who may not want to give up their their, their sovereignty, but at the same time don't want to compromise themselves uh, and set some kind of precedent which they may come back to be held accountable to. And we've seen this in a number of, 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 of situations mm. where the UN has been left almost stranded mm. because it doesn't have the, 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 the ability or the leverage to push member states to do something that they should be doing. Mm. And I think in, in Africa we've seen those, 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 those levels of, of intervention which the UN wants to have but cannot have because there's just no political will by, 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 by member states within the UN, with the UN system. Mm. And I think that is partly the reason as well that you're having this debate about the reform of the Security Council sure. because of the way in which the, the, the so-called uh, the global uh, distribution of power 
from 1945 to now has basically diffused. It's become much more diversified. There's no just one center of power anymore, or there's not just a bipolar world that we live in. Uh, It's it's moved to a multipolarity. It's moved to a diffusion of power, diffusion of, of centers. Of, of, of power within the global system. And, we, and, 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 and countries that are pushing for this reform are saying, reflect these global realities sure. that the world has, doesn't stay the same. It actually changes in a, in, a, in a constant manner, that the world is not necessarily static, but it's evolving constantly and rapidly. Mm. And so you need to reflect these stages. And then you have countries like um, China and mm. India uh, who are pushing uh, for for, for, for for big reforms, but also wanting to retain the, the their role within the UN, mm. uh, and so when it, when they need to use the UN, they use the UN as a multilateral body that says here's some of the issues we want to push forward. But at the end of the day, as well, they're also governed by their sovereignty. So you know you can't you can't say well they're pushing for this reform and therefore mm. we should do it. But at the end of the day. Uh, you want to also say to them that you need to do things and we don't want to do things. So mm. there's, there's, there's this whole, you know, this whole question of inequities within the global system uh, that, 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 in a sense, that we, 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 we're looking at a, a situation where the question about the kinds of work the UN does is so relevant to the kinds of issues we're dealing with on a daily basis. Mm. And it's not just about peace and security. Or it's not just about uh, uh, issues related to uh, conflict zones and conflict intervention and and, and prevention of conflict. Mm. It's also about humanitarian issues. It's about questions relating to climate change, questions relating to a natural disaster that causes humanitarian crises. So the UN is working in a, in a, in a very encompassing environment trying mm. to cover all of these issues. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and I'm going to come back to Kenneth Diola, who is part of the youth program at the South African Institute for International Affairs. He's a young oak in our studios. He says he's been participating in the election of the new Secretary General, also being involved in youth development programs within the UN and also that input on the Security Council deliberations. So we'll speak about uh, more of uh, uh, the United Nations Day. What is the importance of this body, the United Nations? Give us your thoughts. Remember, you can uh, tweet us your thoughts on at Channel Africa 1. Why do you think Africa should be included on the UN Security Council's membership uh, permanent seat? Uh, That's what we're talking about. Seems to be as highlighted there uh, by uh, uh, Sanusha Naidu, that those dynamics of uh, Africa not being pre- represented uh, in that permanent uh, seat uh, do not reflect the nuances, the political nuances that we're currently seeing and the globe, the new global aspects of uh, the world that we're currently seeing. But give us your thoughts on at Channel Africa 1, that's our Twitter handle. We're asking you why do you think Africa should be included on the UN Security Council's permanent seat. Our other handle is at African Dialogue. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back continuing this discussion change your game be the voice of young african entrepreneurs change your game a program that promotes open discussion change your game we bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates, and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 
1000 hours to 10:45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance at Channel Africa One. That's our Twitter handle or at African Dialogue. Give us your thoughts. Why do you think that Africa should be represented in the United Nations uh, Secretary General uh, uh, permanent seats? Give us your thoughts. And that's the Security Council, not Secretary General, but Security Council of the uh, United Nations. Five permanent seats. It's also a very much of a powerful block because most of decisions rest on those five Africa, those five countries that exclude the continent of, of Africa. But let me bring Kenneth in. That's Kenneth Diole, who's part of the youth program at the South African Institute for International Affairs. Thank you for coming in, Kenneth. Uh, give us your thoughts right now in terms of uh, this part that we're talking about right now, why Africa uh, as a continent is not having that permanent member of the United Nations. And this is likely to change in the near future because I find it odd that 50 plus odd countries do not have a, a seat in the Security Council as a, a permanent member which yields a powerful veto and representing Africa and African interests. What are your thoughts around that? Well, firstly, good morning to you and your um, listeners. I think um, the question surrounding um, Africa being represented in the Security Council is also a, f- a reflection of where we stand now um, in 2016 as in comparison to, to the, uh, 1945, right? Mm. The world has totally changed. We Definitely. cannot still have the winners of the World War II being the main decision makers because we have to be able to say how has the world changed and in the world being changed the way it is currently it is imperative to say there have been a number of other countries coming up in their power South Africa, Nigeria being one of them, Brazil for example and mm. India, you know, mm. it is important and maybe that is why we're seeing that the, the movement of other regional blocks or other blocks such as the BRICS and now upcoming MICTA, which is Mexico, Indonesia, yeah. Korea, um, Turkey, and yeah. Australia. You see, because people are starting to understand that, you know what, as long as the UN is like this, certain reforms will not happen. You know, yeah. one of the questions that we have to ask is that even in the elections of the new Secretary General, one of the, um, there were seven female candidates who were absolutely competent. Yeah. And this is not to say that the, uh, the, the elected Secretary General is not um, competent. No, sure. that's not. Sure. But I just have to ask the question about, are we really... Um, passionate, actually serious about reforming the Security Council in terms of gender, in terms of what it represents currently. Because at the moment, this, as you say, the the... the you know, the, the most strategic decision-making body, which is the Security Council, is not representative of the world because one veto power, you know, um, is very problematic. We have seen the consequences in Libya. We are seeing the consequences um, in Syria today sure, and what sure. is happening. Yeah. So I think it is important that we have to ask that question and we have to say, how is the new Secretary General going to come and advocate for new things? If you look at his manifesto, there are a number of issues that I would argue have been excluded. The mm-hmm. fact that as we stand now on the African continent, about 200 million young, um, mm-hmm. uh, 200 million people are young people and the yeah, age of 24 yeah, actually sure, sure. you see and that is estimated to double in yeah. the next couple of, of decades you yeah. know and that is important because we have to have an international body that is reflective of the geopolitics of now yeah. of the transferring of power and the yeah. multipolarity of how things are done yeah. and that's for me that's one of the criticisms that I think we have against the Security Council that it needs to reform yeah. it needs to reflect the current dynamic of um, global politics but more importantly as well it, the, when you represent when you have an African representative yeah. a number of the issues will most likely 
actually change. The fact that now South Africa might be pulling out of the ICC mm-hmm. is indicative to the need for transformation because mm-hmm. it speaks to say we're not we, we're not reflected and um, or uh, what you call represented in the trans- mm-hmm. in the uh, Security Council. What, what, so I hear what you're saying in yeah. that regard, but what, what does that say about the interests of the United Nations with this power block of these five permanent members? Does it represent a certain interest that doesn't accommodate maybe mm-hmm. uh, developing countries? I would argue yes, because I think, one, we have to, yes, uh, acknowledge the successes of the United Nations, yeah. and there are a number of failures as well, and obviously other challenges, but I think it is important to say that, one, the world, you know, most countries now are in a developmental state, you yeah. know, and we cannot still um, have the, almost to say, decision makers, quote-unquote, um, being the leading role. We need to ensure that other regions are reflected, especially developing regions. We have no representative from Latin America, yeah. from Africa, and these two regions are booming now in terms of development. You know, yeah. when you look at various Indian they will tell you that most um, the, the top five countries that are developing are from Africa, all these regions. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of power as well, it speaks to the need to reform. So I would say, yes, we need to reform the Security Council so that it develops. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is inclusive of developing nation. And then I think it will speak to some of the decisions that will be made. You mm-hmm. know, I think some things are very irrational in the sense that they're dislocated, in the mm-hmm. sense that when you're in the Security Council, an issue happening in Central African Republic or the mm-hmm. DRC mm-hmm. does not affect you as much in terms of migration. Sure, it's African sure. countries that will be reflected, you know. Mm. Let, let, let me take that to, San, sorry to cut you off yeah. there, Kenneth. Uh, I just want to ask Anusha Naidu in terms of that interest dynamics, because we know, uh, especially looking at the pattern of global economies, the word interest seems to be one that takes over a lot when you're speaking about uh, these international bodies. And as highlighted by Kenneth Diole, we've seen the same uh, sentiment going towards the International Criminal Court. Mm. Your thoughts around that? I have to say that Kenneth raises some very significant points about the way in which these bodies actually become uh, caught up with, with, with regard to how interests are played out and how different mechanisms and different kinds of uh, geopolitical issues play themselves out in, in, in multilateral institutions and, and then more importantly, I think, the UN in terms of how it, it, mm. it, it's structured. There's one point I really like to uh, refer to that Kenneth made, which I think was really, really significant, and that was the question of the gender, the gender issue within the UN, especially mm. at the higher level of the of the Secretary General's office. I mean, this was going to be this 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 uh, voting for the general, uh, the Secretary General was going to be very novel, very innovative, and an open process, which you know, in in a technical way, yes, it was. Um, and it did necessarily try to bring mu- a much more openness to the way the UN operates and so forth. Mm. But here's the thing, and I think Kenneth has touched on it and it's something that needs to be expanded on, is if we are talking about reflecting the realities of an international system that has evolved from 1945, and if we take away all of those geopolitical issues, if we say, okay, fine, let's take away the question that power has devolved and, de- and diffused itself, that power relations are no longer reflecting 1945. The critical issue is that the UN talks about gender empowerment. Mm. It talks about bringing about gender equality, gender empowerment, mm. uh, and strengthening the role of women within um, the, the, its agencies and so forth. It does it in others, but why doesn't? Why can't it do it in the context of actually placing a woman at the top of its its its, its, its agency, mm. its body, mm. the, the, the you know the the, the the executive? And I think. 
that in itself is not about power. It's about reflecting the fact that we talk about these issues on a daily basis at a subnational level, a national level, a regional, a continental, and we talk about it even in, this, in, 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 in various capacities of the UN and the work that the UN does. So there needs to be that alignment between what the rhetoric is and what is happening. Mm-hmm. That's the first point. Mm. The second thing around the power plays and the vested interests that, that, that you asked me about, I think you can't ignore that in multilateral agencies. Mm. It's actually the way the nature of, the, of, of multilateral agencies and the way in which these organizations are con- constructed and, 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 and the way that they define themselves, that it's wherever you have member states, it's an intergovernmental body, wherever you have these kinds of member states, the, 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 the national interest or the vested interest or the interests at, at, in general do come into play. And it's always about, you know, I always remember what, what international relations is all about. Mm. Uh, and I think it was one of the, 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 the British parliamentarians um, who said, uh, uh, Lord Palmerston, he said, mm. in, foreign, in, 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 in international relations, you don't have, you have permanent interest, not permanent friends. <laughs> and so in, in the context of interest, interests mm. are always evolving. And I think all countries in the world are looking at what their interests are and how they best uh, 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 basically uh, behave, make decisions that represent those interests. Mm. And I think that's what it's about, is, is are we asking, are we, when we talk about a reflection of the global realities, we must also ask ourselves that on the Security Council there are two members that are members of the BRICS mm. who have veto power, which have used their veto power when they've sought to play their interests at when their interests were at play, mm. um, and they themselves have certain 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 issues around the reforming of the Security Council. Mm. Uh, you know, and they have their own reasons why they would oppose certain members, uh, certain countries that want to be part of a reformed Security Council membership, a permanent a seat, and though and, and and why they oppose that. And mm. we can see those 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 issues at play in terms of interest, whether it's China over Japan and not wanting Japan to to have a permanent seat uh, in a reformed Security Council for whatever geostrategic regional issues it has with Japan. The other actor is the fact that there's tensions between India and China. Mm -hmm. And and to a large extent, there's there's an issue of of what India sees. If you take the latest BRIC summit and you look at that declaration that came out from the BRIC summit, Mm -hmm. it was very much about the first time I saw so much of reference to terrorism and counterterrorism. Mm, mm. Because India is so worried about China's role within with Pakistan, uh, Russia's kind of leaning uh, and opening up its, 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 its relationship with Pakistan. What does that mean for, for China, for India being, being encircled by, uh, Russia, by, by Pakistan and Pakistan uh, friends? Or, 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 or powers like China and mm-hmm. Russia. It, it, it's, it was absolutely amazing to see that declaration and actually un, unpack it and say, why is terrorism such a big thing now for India? Mm. Because um, of what's happening in the region. Sure. And India is very concerned mm. about the fact that uh, China is right on its doorstep. China, I, th- I think, you know, it's, 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 it's all... China now mm. will probably also be very wary of, of, of saying, I'm, I'm going to 
endorse India for a permanent seat. Yes, mm. they may do it in terms of broad language, but in terms of geostrategic interests, which then reflect themselves in these multilateral bodies, they play themselves out in different ways. Well, I'm also interested in looking at the heads of uh, these uh, this particular body, uh, the United Nations. It's interesting to see that Boutros Boutros Ghali was uh, the Secretary General from 1992 to 1996, and we saw that kind of transition of him being moved into office after a term of losing uh, the Clinton administration's trust. Uh, Kofi Annan was uh, uh, said to be the savior of Africa, and that's still a questionable notion after his turn. And Ban Ki-moon, I see him as kind of a very passive, apologetic, uh, uh, he's got that kind of sense of, uh, um, you know, like a very... uh, administrative more than anything, you know. So what are your thoughts around Ban Ki-moon's Turner? Benjamin, can I just come in on that point? Sure. I think you raised also a very interesting point that we tend to, we need to look at and examine and in terms of how nominations take place and, mm. the, uh, and, the, and the election of, of heads of these bodies come into play. Um, it's almost like the, the, the countries that know that this is this block's turn to have somebody representing sure, sure. From, that, from, that, you know, from that particular group of countries. So it's almost as if we, 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 we play those interests because, you know, you had Kofi Annan, and you rightly pointed out Kofi Annan, but it had to do with the way in which the politics between the permanent five played itself out. Now mm. we've got the, 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 the Portuguese uh, 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 individual that's the head mm. of the... Antonio Guterres, yes. Yes, and, now, and then also in, in terms of the IMF and the World Bank, uh, in terms of, of, of the way in which um, those issues, those those presidencies or those heads uh, of, 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 of voting and nomination take place, it's almost like, I'll give you this and you give me that. <laughs> so in a sense, I think that is perhaps where we need to start unpacking the block the block voting that takes place, the block endorsements mm. that take place within multilateral and mm. within the WTO as well. Mm. You know, when you think about the WTO and the and, and the and the Director General of the WTO, mm. again, it's based on you know who is actually nominating, who's endorsing, and how these countries vote in different types of blocks. Mm. Let me let me bring in uh, Kenneth. I think he wants yeah. to say something. Kenneth, yeah. your thoughts? I think the one thing that I wanted to add to that conversation is that this year's election, as they said, was very transparent. But at the end of the day, one of the things that we must consider was that the final vote actually comes from the Security Council. Mm. You see, because they do a straw poll for all the various candidates. And yes, mm. the the elected Secretary General was the overall winner. Mm. And though it was transparent, we need to understand that if they had vetoed him, he would not have been um, the Security Council, uh, I mean the Secretary General. Mm. So the question must still be that, are we really transparent or anything has changed? So the difference between the election of this, um, ele- uh, the, the new one, and the incumbent Ban Ki-moon is maybe yes the process was was transparent but the final vote we can argue is still the same it lies within the power of the security council you see mm-hmm. so that is one thing that we must continue to challenge as well because yes transparency was there but was it really transparent mm-hmm. because it did not offer any other person who was going to challenge the status quo cool, yeah. an opportunity you mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. because if somebody who had said we need to reform the security council had been a leading candidate and with the uh, the incumbent security council 
it would have probably failed again. Mm. And that is mm. why some of the other candidates, and particularly I would argue, candidates like Helen Clark and um, Christina, um, the one who uh, who led the, the, the historic Paris Agreement, mm. did not make mm. it. Mm. Because it's part of that, that people who are going to change the status quo will not necessarily succeed. And that's one thing that we must challenge, right? Mm. And I think, um, going back to your question about Ban Ki-moon, I think one of the things that we have seen, I think comparatively to uh, Kofi Annan, mm. is yes, he might not necessarily be the, the most, um, what you call it, charismatic in comparison. Yes, yes. But I think one thing that um, he stood out for me I think has been at the forefront of maybe key things like your humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. he has spoken out time and time again about what has happened he has condemned the, the, the Libya action and what is currently happening in the DRC mm-hmm. as well as in Syria you know we need to also understand that the powers of the Secretary General are very limited mm-hmm. and again we go back to the uh, Security Council because that happens to be you know the final decision making body if mm-hmm. you may call it like that mm-hmm. so that is where the criticism must be come from and I think one of the key challenges that must um, the new uh, uh, Secretary General must face or must engage about is that how are we going to ensure that not only is the um, UN as a body representative and challenging all the issues globally mm-hmm. and not just the ones that are have particular interest to the uh, P5 members mm-hmm. is is that and the other thing is that when we speak about um, the sustainable development goals which were adopted last year mm-hmm. in comparison to the Millennium Development Goals we have to ask what are the key countries that we need to be looking at mm-hmm. Africa for example the climate change the the Horn of Africa is going to be the most affected by mm-hmm. this thing mm-hmm. we've already seen with the drought that is happening in Southern Africa now. And these are challenges that are not... so high in the UN agenda and we must ask those questions of why it is happening like that and maybe that is also a reason why some of our African countries are resorting maybe to other blocks mm. or the African Union particularly. Mm. Yes, it has its challenges but I think it speaks to the current narrative that says the UN is still an effective body but it needs to reform to be truly representative and to act to the challenges as they come through, right? Mm. Because if that is not going to change, then we're going to see more and more countries reflect to different bodies, whether it's economic blocks, whether it's their own regional uh, mm. blocks like the AU or the European Union, you know, it's going to lose a certain amount of credibility. So one of the challenges that must come through from the new Secretary General is that how do we include all countries that have been marginalized for a while, and especially the the, the, the superpowers of the, the various regions, so Nigeria, South Africa and Africa, Brazil in, 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 in thingy, and your Australian countries, for example, or the Australasia. We need to be reconsidering and reimagine how the UN can fit the, the demands of the current generation, you know. And I think I'm very passionate about the uh, the youth population because one thing that we must note is that in South Africa as an example 66% of our population are young people under the age of 35 mm. and actually 51% 51% of South Africa's population are young people under the age of 25 mm. you know and we can go through the entire continent where we speak about the increasing youth population mm. you know and that there's been a term said the youth de- uh, dividend by dividend, UNICEF yeah. you know but for that to happen we need an inclusive body we need an inclusive UN that is reflective of the current generation and the challenges that are facing it mm. well I'm going to take a quick break. Very interesting insights from both our guests. If you're joining us, uh, I have Kenneth Diole, who's joining us in our studios. He's part of the youth program at the South African Institute for International Affairs. I also have Sanusha Naidu on the line. She's a senior research associate at the Institute for Global Dialogue. Let's take a quick break. It's 11.33 Central African time. I'll be back and we'll continue this uh, conversation and uh, move on into the whole uh, dynamic of uh, what would be the new priorities of uh, the new uh, Secretary General of uh, the United Nations. Give us your thoughts. Remember, you can still tweet us at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa. We're asking why do you think Africa should be included on the UN Security Council's permanent seat? Give us your thoughts on our Twitter handle. Let's take a quick break. It's been saying a mouthful today. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up this conversation.
Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates, and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10:45 a.m. Central African time, and on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're with me right now, Benjamin Moshatama, and this is African Dialogue Monday to Thursday. It is a handful of a program where we try to create a dialogue and kind of contextualize issues. So maybe in a week we might have 20 people in a conversation from Monday to Thursday. But it's a pleasure doing this uh, particular program. Now, you highlighted a few things, uh, uh, Kenneth, and I want to take them back to Sanushu Naidu in terms of uh, the new agenda of Antonio uh, Guterres, who is uh, the new um, uh, Secretary General, what would his focus have to be uh, looking at the world, becoming more polarized, everyone having their own kind of view in terms of their own uh, political power. Every region has a certain strength in its, uh, in its own sense, and everyone is starting to recognize that. And what would need to be actually reshuffled within uh, the United Nations to see a form of progress? Well, I think, Benjamin, the part, uh, there, were, there were a few issues that uh, your, my, your guest in the studio mentioned, which I think has been very important. One is how do you prioritize the SDGs, and in particular the post-2030, um, the 2030 uh, development agenda, which mm. is, you know, we don't have much time to, to get it off the ground sure. and also to have implementation of, 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 the, of, the, of the various goals and the 169 targets. Mm. So that, I think, would be one of the key issues. And I think when you're talking about polarization and we're talking about it in the context of geopolitics, I think we've also got to remember that a key team that has come out of the UN for a number of years um, with, with, with the previous Secretary General and, of course, um, uh, uh, especially after the 1990s, has been the question of inclusive growth. And that has been a, that's been a key question about how do you create inclusive growth. And if you look at the narrative around the growth and development issues, uh, the narrative is built around this view um, that you need to find growth that brings people into the mainstream of development, that provides for them to be able to enjoy not a trickle-down effect, but mm. definitely enjoy the benefits in the way that they should be enjoying social development benefits, mm. and that empowers them and gives them the ability not to become radicalized and not to become engaged in radicalized populism. And one of the things that, you're, that, the, that the guest in the studio mentioned, I think his name is Kenneth, if I got it correct. Yeah, you, you correct. Um, Kenneth mentioned was the question of youth, and that's the key driver. For me, I think that if you're looking at how do you incorporate the youth into inclusive development strategies, into this whole question about uh, minimizing the risks that, that, and mitigating the risks around uh, radicalism, and the kinds of issues that we see underlining a lot of the, 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 the global frameworks 
about social development and 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 development at, uh, in terms of reducing inequalities i think that's the key question for for the new secretary general to be able to achieve under his watch some tangible outcomes around that not just play i mean obviously uh, he he is going to be he's going to have not uh, undue amount of influence. He's going to have limited influence in what he's able to achieve. Mm. But I think the, the, in terms of the fact that he, under his watches, there's a lot of this debate that comes back to what is the polarization? What is the issue that's happening that's creating mm. this polarization? And that is, I think, the, the whole transformation issue, the transformation of societies, the transformation of development. Mm. We see now an interesting trajectory emerging within the global the global, you know, the global arena, where we're not talking about development as something that can actually be born out of aid or whatever. We're talking mm. about the shift from aid to trade. Mm. So a lot of the development initiatives that you are seeing, whether it's in the BRICS uh, declaration or whether mm. it's in mm. MICTA or any of these other groupings that you see countries uh, moving towards, is talking about development through a trade lens, through mm. a trade nexus. So the mm. nexus between trade and development, that you can trade your way out of poverty, you can trade your way out of inequality, mm. and that leads to development. But the challenge with that kind of narrative is that it does, it is exclusionary mm. at times. Mm. And that exclusion means that those people that are not benefiting, those people that are not part of that process, you know, they, 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 they become extremely, extremely despondent, they become apathetic, and mm. they can become very, very volatile. And I think that's the real question around how do we deal with these sustainable development initiatives and also the question of climate change. I think mm. that's going to be critical because we talk about it, we, we know that there are UN uh, frameworks around it in terms of the UN FTC and so forth. Mm. But again, it's also the question of getting member states to sign on to some of those concessions, the protocols, to, to actually implement them at a national level, align them to national development frameworks and so forth. Mm. So for me, I think, you know, we're sitting in a world where, yes, there is geopolitics and very much the realities of geopolitics that, under, that, that still talk about politics in a very kind of uh, real, uh, talk about it in a way that it's about guns, it's about mm. conflict, whatever. But those conflicts are also born out of this whole whole, whole inequality of development mm. in the world. Mm. Well, I need to wrap it up. There's also uh, an interesting t- trajectory that's happening in the world is that you're seeing a, a huge phenomenon of migration due to mm-hmm. um, kind of unrest in some countries. And also there's that political situation where we're seeing uh, you know, uh, the consequences of uh, wars and conflicts in countries such as Libya, when you look at Iraq, what's happening there. So the interest in terms of those uh, conflicts also create that um, exacerbation probably for most political part- countries. Um, and for me, I'm trying to figure out how do you move forward with a lot of these internal uh, politics within countries left at bay where you know, countries have, the U.S. has went into Iraq. We saw what happened to, to Libya. And almost countries have been left wanting. And let me bring that to you, Kenneth. Does that actually show that, you know, is the United Nations a transformative body? Or does it still need to work on that transformation aspects in terms of development in countries? 
the UN needs to reform. As I said earlier, that yes, we have to acknowledge some of its successes, but I think currently we ne- it needs a drastic reform, particularly to the developing countries, because one, it means that most of their issues are sidelined or are not as prioritized mm-hmm. as some sure. of the key interests of the P5 members or the Security Council members uh, for that sake. So I think one of the things that needs to happen is that in the advocacy for the reform of the United Nations, part of the conversation must be if we, um, when we actually eventually, um, um, what you call, transform the UN, how do we start to prioritize issues? Do we mm. maintain the veto vote, for example, mm. or does it change the system? Because I think that in itself will create a new balancing system that says you might, your interest might be Iraq, for example, in terms of the oil or whatever the case mm. may be, mm. but the interest of the developing countries are the following. So instead of you having a veto power over our issues, let us have a system where we can say maybe a 66% or mm. you know a majority vote where we say these are the issues that we're going to be voting so I think the development and, and of, of other countries is important, but that needs to be meshed with how are we going to transform it? Because it is not going to help us at the end of the day if we have an African country that still does the same thing as the current Security Council, right? Mm-hmm. So it is important that in the um, inclusion of other countries, maybe an African country and a Southern, Afri- mm-hmm. uh, Southern American countries, that we say, how do we change the system to ensure that issues that need to be discussed are mm-hmm. reflective of the entire um, global cop- uh, population, mm-hmm. you know? And that, I think, will be at the core of the, di- uh, the discussion because at the moment, also, the Security Council's main mandate is peace and conflict, mm-hmm. you know? And we have to acknowledge that, and that is why why it will be discussing your Syria and whatnot. Mm. But maybe in future, that ne- does not necessarily have to be the main thing. Mm. Because obviously we have to understand that the conflict now is mainly intrastate. It's mm. not interstate, you yeah, know. Yeah. And the, so the, the nature of it is changing. Mm. So that means also the, the nature of the Security Council needs to be changing as well to mm. say that, one, how do we ensure that obviously we can um, mitigate and, you know, adapt to the various challenges that are coming. Mm. And especially, as you said, climate change. Climate change will probably be, you know, will, will cl- uh, probably cause some of the other wars, particularly mm. in Africa. You mm. know, we have seen mm the droughts and the conditions of what has happened are also going to cause migration mm. and they're going to cause xenophobia as we're seeing in, in Europe now, mm. you know, mm. the crisis that happened in Haiti now, you know, these are some of the challenges that will bring the, the, the next wars of, you know, in the coming years mm. and we need to understand how do we then um, adapt to that but also ensure that when the Security Council eventually does transform, it is reflective of the needs of the time mm. but also ensures that it can be as inclusive as possible even to the most marginalized of countries. Mm. Uh, final sentiments from you, Sanusha. We've got a whole lot of wastelands that are caused by wars and uh, we're also seeing the repercussions of that through the refugee crisis and the whole migration into Europe. That is a big conversation as well. We could have a different show on that. But just in a minute or so, um, how do we deal with these new political nuances? Terrorism is, is one of the biggest threats as well in, as, a, as a political threat. You know? yeah. So w- what are your thoughts in, in that regard? Well, Benjamin, I think to, to a large extent, yes, all of these things are interrelated. I mean, there's sure. no one thing that can be singled out as the most the most important. I think that there's knock-on effects to what happens in terms of these new political realities that we are facing in the world and the nuances of impact that it has. So if it's climate change, it has knock-on effects for migration, refugee crisis, etc. But here's the thing for me. There has to be a willingness within that, need, within mm. that body to change. Um, and, and that willingness needs to come from the fact that you need to see how everyone is going to be affected by a crisis. Mm. And I think climate, the climate issue is the one area where it's not, uh, it's not I can play catch-up, it's mm. a zero-sum game. Because everybody's going to be affected, whether you're going to be affected by a refugee crisis, whether you're going to be affected by uh, conflict in different ways, whether you're going to be affected. The bottom line is 
the, 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 the environment is not waiting for us to decide when we're going to take action. Well, I have and to I wrap it up there. Sorry, Sanusha. Point. Thank you so much for your time. That's Sanusha Naidu. Uh, thank you for giving us those uh, global nuances. It's always great having you on our program. She's the Senior Research Associate at the Institute for Global Dialogue. For the first time, Kenneth, can you imagine? Kenneth is around 24. He's only 23. I couldn't believe it just listening to him. Kenneth Diol is part of the youth program at the South African Institute for International Affairs. Hey, Kenneth, why don't we get you to be UN Secretary General for this year? And, you know, maybe things might just move forward much more quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? In the next couple of years, who knows? Fantastic. Thank you for coming in. That's how we wrap it up. Let's quickly move on and get our business news from Wisani Matibula. Thanks, Benjamin, and good morning. Egypt has launched uh, the world's biggest tender for liquefied natural gas as officials from trading houses and oil mergers converged in Cairo, undeterred by tough new rules forcing them to wait even longer to get paid. After months of speculation and delay, state-run Egypt National Gas Holding released the the tender documents on Sunday in a bid to secure 96 LNG shipments. A South African Mine Workers Union, AMQ, has reached a wage deals in principle with her platinum producers, Anglo-American Platinum, Impala Platinum and Lon Min, subject to final approval from its members. This means a strike has almost certainly been averted in South Africa's platinum sector, which is still recovering from a crippling five-month stoppage led by the union in 2014. AMQ's President uh, Joseph Matunja says uh, the members' demands have been secured from the companies. Meanwhile, South African mobile operator MTN has suspended dividend payouts from its Nigerian unit amid allegations that it has allegedly and illegally moved 14 billion US dollars out of the West African country. In its quarterly update, MTN Nigeria continues to refute the allegations that MTN Nigeria had improperly repatriated funds from Nigeria. Sitlezuma reports. Nigeria's upper house of parliament last month agreed to investigate whether Africa's biggest telecoms company unlawfully repatriated 13.92 billion US dollars between 2006 and 2016. The Johannesburg-based company reported a slight fall in the number of users in the third quarter due to a weaker showing in a fiercely competitive home market where it vies for market share with Vodacom and Salsi. The International Monetary Fund delegation is expected in Zambia next week on a fact-finding mission of the state of the economy. Speaking in Parliament, Finance Minister Felix Mutati confirmed that Zambia will get a loan from the IMF in return to accept some conditions from the global financial organization. Mutati, however, refuted claims that the removal of subsidies was government's reaction to IMF conditions. And diamond miner Petro Diamonds has reported a 30% rise in first quarter production boosted by strong output at its Cullinan mine in Pretoria, South Africa. Petra, which owns a Finch, Cullinan and Kimberley mine, says production rose to 1.1 million carats from the three months ended September. Financial indicators now. The dollar is at 13.96. South African rands at 10.55. Botswana Bula at 9.85. 
Zambian kwacha. Also trading at 0.812 the British pound and 0.91 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,263, platinum $932 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $51.55 per barrel. That's your economics news for now. I'm back in an hour's time with another update. I'm now to get our sports and uh, we have uh, Fili Lingwa T standing by. Now sports update this hour. South Africa's bowlers flex their muscles with a pink ball the day after the touring batsman had done likewise to round out the warm-up match against a Cricket Australia 11 under lights at Adelaide Oval. Dale Stain and Vernon Philander both show the ability to swing the pink ball in the day-night match, which is part of the build-up to the three-test series against Australia, which starts in Perth on the 3rd of November. And on to football news, South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns has made history when they were crowned champions of the 2016 CAF Champions League in Egypt on Sunday. Sundowns becomes the second South African team to be crowned continental champions in 21 years. Orlando Pirates were first in Southern Africa to be crowned champions back in 1995. Sundowns lifted the trophy despite a 1-0 loss to five-time African champions Zamalek and Alexandria. Sundowns coach Peter Misimane says their formula of winning their home matches paid dividends. And in rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kutsier has dismissed media claims that he has fallen out with Toulon number 8 Duane Vermeulen, whose test appearances this season have been severely curtailed by injuries. Vermeulen was left out of the 33-man Springbok squad named on Saturday to play England at Twickenham on the 12th of November, in Italy in Florence on the 19th of November and Wales in Cardiff on the 26th of November. He will also play no part in the match against the Barbarians at Wembley on the 5th of November. And the South African rugby side, Free State Cheetahs coach Franco Smith was elated at the his team's 36-16 Curry Cup final victory against the Blue Bulls at Toyota Stadium in Bloemfontein at the weekend to end them their fifth domestic title. What was even more pleasing for Smith is that his team did so with an unblemished record, winning all 10 of their matches this year. Smith says it is a plan that was hatched 16 months ago when they started with a new group of players and it has worked because of all the hard work everyone has put in. Yeah, obviously, you know, it's nice to have a team that's unbeaten. Uh, look, it, it never counted for us to be unbeaten until all well, today is, but today to win this one was important and last week, obviously, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. You know, I still, we came with a plan. 16 months ago and said we're gonna, this is what we're going to do and uh, we actually you know let a lot of the senior players go to start with a bunch of new guys and and awesome I think uh, it's important that we know if you you know if you really work hard at something um, you can achieve and I think that was that is what the, that is what the cheetah stand or stood for this whole season and are standing for is that hard work you know you have don't, don't, don't have to have a name. You don't have to be the best. You must just work really hard. So, and I think 
um, that was the story tonight. And finally, with swimming news, the South African swimming team have cemented their place as Africa's top swimming nation by being the clear winners of the 12 Kana African Swimming Championships with a total of 61 medals. 10 more than the 2012 edition of the competition which took place in Nairobi, Kenya. On the final day of the event in Bloemfontein, South Africa's Free State Province, it was Michelle Weber who collected South Africa's final gold medal in the women's 5km open water race. In the men's 5km open water race, the battle was between Egypt's Youssef Hassim, Marwan El Amrawi and Daniel Murray. In the end, it was Hassim's final stride which won him the gold ahead of El Rwari and Murray claiming the bronze for South Africa. That's your Sport News this hour. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us. This is African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday, as you should know right now, at 1100 hours Central African time. And uh, you're welcome to interact with us. Remember our African Dialogue Twitter handle at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa One, the numeric one. That's our radio station's uh, Twitter handle at Channel Africa One. Uh, hey, we want to hear your comments. So you can also SMS us on uh, plus 2783 our email address is info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. That's how I end the program today. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, more stories to tell about the African continent. Until then, God bless. The